And if you are here, and this is your first time here, we're in a conversation, and it's all about happiness, what it means to be happy, things of that nature. See if this doesn't ring a bell. See if this little statement that I'm going to read to you right now is not familiar, and if you know where it comes from. You ready? You ready? Here we go. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Raise your hand if you think you know where I'm reading from. Okay. Some of you are not quite there. That all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among them are life. You finish it. Wow. That was kind of sheepish. Maybe we go back to school, huh? That is right from the Declaration of Independence, right? Our founding fathers wrote that somehow, here's what they thought, thought themselves that this idea of pursuing happiness is a right of ours, right? It's a value of ours. It's something in our country we all want to pursue. We want to have it. And yet here's what we're saying, that as much as it's a value, as much as maybe even it's a right, as much as it might be something we want to pursue, that many of us are missing it. Many of us can't seem to get our hands around it. A lot of us can't figure out how to obtain it. And so we live in a country, in a culture that is desperate to find happiness, desperate to pursue this thing in the Declaration of Independence called happiness. And so we've been talking about this each week. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that uh, even some businesses are beginning to hire a position called happiness coaches, right? The whole goal of that position is that somehow they make sure the employees are happy. Don't you want one of those where you work? It's fascinating, right? We have all kinds of ways in which we pursue happiness. I did a little research, and uh, maybe you could do this on your own, but uh, look at different ways in which we begin to pursue happiness. I found some interesting things about our culture. One is there's these things called happiness retreats. That sounds fun, right? Happiness retreats. And here's how it's described. Relax by the pool in Santa Barbara. I'm happy already, right? Anybody else? Enjoy farm-to-table meals under the stars. Truly connect with what makes you happy. Elevate your health. Quiet the negative internal clutter. And then it says this, meal plan like a ninja. I have no idea what that means, all right? Improve your romantic relationships. Set your goals. Reduce your stress. You deserve to be happy. Not only are there retreats about happiness, but there's workshops. Here's what it says. Happiness workshops. Find your pleasure, purpose, and peace in this workshop. Packed with anecdotes, research, exercises, and actions to show you how you can be happy right now. There's happiness retreats, happiness books. There's happiness books called The Happiness Project, Stumbling on Happiness, The Art of Happiness, The Myth of Happiness. There's happiness documentaries. How I know that is I watched one last night. You can watch it on Netflix. There's churches called The Happy Church. That sounds like a good place to go to church, doesn't it? I'd want to go there to church. And then we've got these songs about happiness. Anybody watch Despicable Me? Raise your hand. Admit it right now. Put your hands down. Raise your hand if you've never watched Despicable Me shame on you, right? You need to watch that. But there's the song Happy, right? Happy and Despicable Me. How many ever heard of the turtles? Anybody ever heard of the singer? Yeah, wow, okay, not many of you, right? Happy together, right? That kind of song. You can see why I'm not on the worship team, right? And then there's the song Don't Worry. You've heard of this stuff. We live in a culture that's addicted to happy. We want to be happy, and yet here's what we've said. We seem starved for it, right? Spend tons on it, can't seem to get our hands around it, and so our culture seems to be losing its smile. That's why we find it really, really interesting that Jesus' very first recorded sermon, he starts the thing off all about happiness. Nine times he uses the word blessed, which simply means this. It means happy, this deep inner joy that is independent of external circumstances. I'm going to say it again. It's this deep happiness, this deep joy, this deep satisfaction that somehow is independent of external circumstances. And so all we've been doing is this. We said, okay, let's lean into what Jesus has to say about happiness Seems like he might be a good person to listen to when it comes to happiness. So we've been just taking it line by line. Now, let me say this. If you haven't been able to be here, if you've not been able to be here, I'd encourage you to go back online and check out what we've already talked about because we're already like over halfway through this, right? Over halfway through it. And so there's some fascinating, I think, profound things that we talked about. I received a lot of feedback from last week. Last week was kind of a tough week, right? Kind of a tough week. But yet there's some, some fascinating things that Jesus had to say to us last week. Here's what Jesus is going to say to us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says, this maybe. Says this, Mitchell, can I have it? There we go. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It says, happy are the pure in heart. This is Jesus, for they will see God. So here's what we've been doing each week. We're simply saying, okay, what in the world is Jesus saying? So we've got to make sense of it, and we've got to like dig into it, and then we've got to kind of build a foundation for it, and then we've got to apply it. 
So, so look here a second. I just want to talk to you a second, okay? We got some very important things we got to talk about today, okay? Some very important things. So here's what you, I'm going to tell you what to expect. I want to talk to you about some high-level things, build a foundation so that you understand what Jesus is saying here, but so that you understand even broader than that the whole idea of what it means to be in a relationship with God, Okay? Then we got to do this. We, we, when we build that foundation, we got to dig in and say, okay, how in the world do we do this? And I think we're going to hit a certain point in the sermon, right, where you're going to barely hear a pin drop in here. I've already done it twice, so I'm pretty sure of that, okay? So you cool with that? You cool with that? So I think we're going to talk about some things that for some of you are like, uh-oh, that's getting kind of close to home, okay? Getting kind of close to home. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, right, when he says happy are the pure in heart, the very first thing we need to understand is, okay, what's he mean by pure? He uses a word that's on purpose, okay? And the Greek word that he uses, I like to tell you this stuff just because it's kind of cool, okay? I don't want to minimize it. It's katharos. Katharos. Everybody say it out loud with me. Ready? Katharos. Now you know Greek, right? You're saying, why did you tell us that? Because it's where we get our word cathartic. Catharsis. It's interesting, right? It all matters. And so what does that mean? What does katharos mean? Well, what does cathartic mean? What does that mean? Well, there's two shades I want you to get to understand what Jesus is saying. First and foremost, pure means this, clean, free from filth, right? You understand that, right? That's pure. Uh, Anybody ever remember the ivory soap commercial, 99.4% pure or something like that, right? Doesn't it make you wonder what's in the part that's not pure? Anybody wonder that? Like, I'm kind of crazy. I wonder that stuff, right? But it's 99% four percent pure. So, uh, but but it's free from filth. Free. It's clean. That's pure. Makes sense to us. So pure means clean, but it means not just clean. That's cathartic, a cleansing. But it's a cleansing that refocuses. So here's what it means. It means to be single-minded, not to have a divided mind. That's what it means. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is simply saying, "Happy are the clean and the committed." That's what he's saying. Happy are the clean and the committed. He says, happy are the pure. Now, he doesn't stop there. He says, those who are pure in heart. What does he mean by that? We got to get this. Some of you who grew up in church may be at a disadvantage on this, I I think. Maybe. I don't know. Because we kind of make all these crazy, like, oh, I just felt this in my heart. I'm singing from my heart. We don't know what we mean by heart, right? We we get all crazy about it. Uh, it, I was listening to a preacher this last week, and I really don't remember who it was, or I'd love to mention who it was, because I listened to a lot of different guys. But he was talking about somebody in his church who who was a follower of Christ that asked Jesus into their heart, and then their heart went bad, and they had to have a heart transplant. They came to the preacher and said, do I need to ask Jesus into my heart again, right? Jesus is not talking about the organ, our heart, right? In fact, I would even say this, Jesus isn't talking about our emotions. That's how we use the word heart oh, you have such a heart, right? And so we use it kind of like, oh, I, you know, I feel this in my heart. We use it kind of that way. Here's why I say that. In the New Testament, when it wants to talk about emotions and feelings, guess what it says? It doesn't say heart. It says bowels or stomach, right? I feel this in my gut, right? We, we kind of use that terminology. So what is Jesus saying? This is important to understand it. It's important to understand. He's saying, happy are those who are clean or committed in their heart. He's talking about their mind, the center of their thinking, the center of their decision-making, the center of their will. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is simply saying, happy are those who are clean in their mind and committed in their life. Happy are the clean and the committed. So what is he saying here? Let's make sense of it. I'm going to give you a big foundation, and then we need to bring it home. Big foundation and bring it home. And the place we got to begin, I really need you, I really want you to, to lean in on this, okay? We need to start with the gospel. Now, before I say anything else, I want to talk to some of you. Some of you in the room are like, I've heard the gospel 500 times. Good, you're going to hear it 501. And if you come here, you're going to hear it 501 and every Sunday from here on out, okay? I don't got much to say apart from the gospel. Honest to goodness. The gospel isn't just what saves me. The gospel is at the very center of following Christ, okay? So, so here's the deal. You're like, I already understand the gospel. Great. I want to keep explaining it all different kinds of ways so that you can better explain it to others who maybe don't know. Does that make sense? And here's what the gospel says. You ready? The gospel says every last one of us in this room is impure. We're not pure. We got filth. We got sin. That's what the gospel says, right? 
And we would all pretty much, I've only ever met one person in my 25 years of pastoring that didn't feel that way, right? And almost everybody agrees with that, that I got stuff in my life shouldn't be there, that I'm a sinner, that I'm dirty, that, that I'm not pure. And the gospel says this, the only person who ever was pure, his name was Jesus. You've heard of him. And he came, and he was the only one who ever was pure, no sin, no filth. And here's what's interesting about the story of Jesus. He died. Why? That's the defining question. Why did Jesus die? Jesus, the pure one, died for all of us who are impure. That's the gospel. That's the good news. What does gospel mean? Some of you are like, I don't understand what the word gospel means. Then write this down somewhere on your notes. Gospel is, is don't make it too hard. It's just the good news. God has good news for you, and that is the only one who ever was pure, died for all of us who are impure. Why? 1 John 1 says this, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He died in my place for my sin. It's the only way for me to understand what it means to be pure in heart. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Let me say it this way. At the cross, okay, I want to correct some thinking for some of us. At the cross, I begin to see God for who he really is. And some of us know the story of the cross, but we haven't seen God for who he really is. You're saying, Dan, what are you talking about? Well, let me explain. Only at the cross, when I begin to see the cross for everything it is, I begin to see accurately who God is. God is loving. God is loving. Shake your hand if you, shake your hand if you agree with that. You agree with that? But that's not all the cross tells me. That's where a lot of us stop sometimes. Like, oh, God loves me. He died for me. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But at the cross, we see that God is holy. He's holy and he's loving. Here's what the cross tells me. God, God cannot coexist with sin. God is holy. He's separate from. He is totally pure. So at the cross, I see God for who he really is. But guess what? Only at the cross do I see me for who I really am. And so I see that God is pure. Guess what? I see that I am what? Impure. God is holy. Guess what? I am unholy. God is righteous. Guess what? I am unrighteous. At the cross, that's what I see. And so guess what? Only at the cross do I see that I'm impure, God is totally pure, and that I need his mercy. So the invitation, here's the good news if you've never heard it. The invitation of the cross is this, that the one who was pure died for me. What does that mean? That I can bring my impurity and I can hang it at the cross. He died for my impurity. And then I can walk away clothed wrapped in his purity so that when I say yes to Jesus, when, when, when God looks at me, he sees the purity, the righteousness of Jesus. I want you to write it this way. Because of the cross, I can enjoy positional purity. Some of you who grew up in church, you're like, man, they used to say a bunch of big words. This is just what justification means. It means that I am declared right with God. That when I say yes to Jesus, I have a position of being declared right with God. It's like a legal term. He looks at me and I am innocent. Why? Because the only one who was innocent died for me being guilty. And so I said, yes, I want to accept this free gift. I am saved from my sins. Listen, when I say yes to Jesus, I'm totally clean from my sins. I am pure in standing. But I'm not just saved from my sins. I want to show you something else. I'm also secured for my future. This is so powerful, guys. 1 John chapter 3 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Check this out. Dear friends, we're children of God. L look here a second. The minute you say yes to Jesus, boom, child of God. He says, so we're children of God. And what we will be, future, you with me? Future has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we will what? See him as he is. Listen close. At the cross, I see God for who he really is. He's holy and loving. I'm impure in need of mercy. I say yes to Jesus. I'm declared pure. I'm declared righteous. But someday when I get to heaven, someday when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Jesus as he really is. And I can anticipate a promised purity. That's glorification. I will be like him. Anybody excited about that? I just want to make sure you're awake. That's kind of good news, right? 
Like, I'm kind of excited about that. These are really good things. I'm declared right. I'm declared pure, although I've been guilty because of what Jesus did. Someday I know I'm going to go to heaven when I say yes to Jesus, right? That's the gospel. You tracking? That's the gospel. Someday when I see Jesus as he really is, I'm going to be like him. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The very next verse in 1 John chapter 3 says this. All who have this hope, listen close. The Bible, let it make sense. What hope? This hope. Someday I'm going to see Jesus. Everybody who has this hope in him, do what? Purify themselves. What in the world is he saying? He's saying, it's awesome that we're declared pure, love it, said yes to Jesus. Now I am wrapped in his purity. I cannot wait until I see Jesus and I'm like him. But you know where the problem is? Today ain't that day. My problem with purity is I got to live every day from this day till that day. And how in the world, anybody tracking with me, just shake your head and then I'll be okay to keep going. You tracking with me? This is where the struggle is. The struggle is how in the world I've been declared pure. I'm going to be pure just like Jesus. But my problem is Monday's coming. And I got to figure out how in the world to be pure. What in the world is he talking about? Simply this, I will pursue practical purity. There is a declared pure. There is a promised pure. But there are days in between. And today ain't that day. We're not in heaven yet. And every day is a struggle, is a pursuit to pursue purity. Why is this important? Because Jesus said, happy are those who are pure. I don't know about you, I kind of want to be happy. And so I want to figure out what in the world does it mean for me to somehow pursue this practical every day from that day to that day purity. Well, here's what's interesting. This is where Jesus had a half-brother. Did you know that? had a half-brother. His name is James. And he wrote something, and I think in what he wrote, he began to help us understand, okay, how do we do this? It's found in the book of James chapter 4. Some of you have it open in your lap. If you don't feel comfortable using a Bible, that's okay. I'll read with you from the screen. If you do feel comfortable using a Bible, this is a little odd, but I would tell you to read from your Bible, mark in your Bible, underline circle in your Bible. Here's what it says. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here's what James is doing. James is talking about purity and I want to just make this like right down in the dirt practical where we're at. He's talking about purity and here's how he helps us understand purity. He helps us understand it by using the marriage relationship as a picture. I'm going to show you that here in a second. He, He wants us to understand, okay, How in the world can I be pure in heart on Monday from this day until that day, till my days here are over? How can I pursue being somebody who's pursuing purity? How can I do that? And he says, let me help you understand that by using marriage because being pure in heart, listen, listen, I'm going to tell you this. I didn't say this the first two. I should have. It's not so much about keeping all the rules. It's about pursuing a relationship. And that's why he uses marriage as a picture of this. You see, when I think about my marriage relationship with Jennifer, pursuing purity in our relationship involves three different things. Three different ingredients when it comes to pursuing purity in my relationship with Jennifer. First and foremost, in my relationship with Jennifer, if I'm going to pursue purity, I can't be double-minded. I have to be devoted. All James is saying is this. I want you to write it down. I will devote my heart to God. I want to explain this to you. Now listen. James is not saying, and and, oh man, I hope I'm not quoted on Facebook or whatever. James, he's not simply saying do your devotions. 
I almost don't even like that word because I get up and spend five minutes in, in the Bible and I'm like, oh, I've done my devotion to God. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. But th- that's not what I'm talking about here. This is bigger, right? It's, it's devotion to God. I'm using the word differently. It's not like a little exercise I do for five minutes a day. It's like a life that's devoted to God. It's a relationship. I'm devoted in this relationship to the one I love, and I will love the one I'm devoted to. That's how it works. I'm devoted to the one I love, and I will love the one I'm devoted to. You see, if I'm devoted in my relationship, it involves several things. Now, now look here a second. Some of you may be in the room, and you're not married. Maybe some of you are thinking about getting married someday. So most of the people I ever talk to marriage about, maybe some of you are in a marriage that's struggling, I usually mention the, these three things I want to mention to you. So you, you're getting a two-for-one today. Like, I'm going to talk about what it means to be devoted to God, and you get some marriage help in the process. Is that a deal? So what does it mean to be devoted in my relationship to God? Well, first and foremost, it means this, that my relationship is exclusive. My relationship is exclusive. You're saying, Dan, you're going to have to help me understand that. Well, I'd be happy to. Let me talk about my wife and I's relationship, and then let's go to God. Can we do that? My wife and I's relationship, and then let's go to God. I am devoted exclusively, you with me, to my wife. You're saying, help me understand that, Dan. I'd be glad to. Here's what that means. On, on November the, the, oh, yeah, that's bad. On November the, <laughs> don't you tell her. On November the 4th, I just was thinking about something else, 1989, November 4th, 1989, I said yes to Jennifer. Now look here a second. You know what happened at that moment? I positionally became her husband. Signed the dotted line out, position became her husband. And when I said yes to Jennifer, guess what? I was not just saying yes to Jennifer. You've heard me say this before if you've been here a length of time. I was saying what? No to everyone else. I'm saying yes to you, you alone. You now have a place in my life. We have a unique relationship. I'm saying yes to you, no to everybody else. Now, that wasn't all I was doing. You know what else I was doing? I was saying yes on that day, and my yes on that day was saying yes to her, positionally her husband, and it is yes this day and every day until that day, the day we're gone. I, I, I was saying, yes, you have a place in my life. It's exclusive. I will keep myself to you and you alone for as long as we both shall, what? Live. That's what I was saying to her, that, I, that you have a place in my life no one else has. Now, now listen, that's how marriage works, right? It's a covenant relationship. Jennifer has a place in my life that no one else is invited into. Let me put it this way. I I don't two-time on my wife, right? How silly would it be if I told you I'm very committed to Jennifer, I love my wife, love being married to her, and I got three or four girlfriends on the side. Some of you are laughing and some of you are like, I think I'd slug you. She would, (laughs) right? I mean, it's crazy, right? It's crazy for you to even think, man, Dan, you would say that? Like, it's even crazy for me to say it, right? For me to say, I'm totally devoted to my wife, and I got three or four girlfriends on the side. I realize we live in a culture where it's like, that might be normal in some places. Listen, there ain't nothing normal about that, right? You know that, right? And so she has a place into my life. She's invited into my life relationally, emotionally, intellectually, physically, spiritually, that no one else is invited. You tracking with me? Because if someone else gets there, you know what we call it? What do we call it? Adultery, right? We call it adultery. Doesn't that make interesting what James says? He's talking about our relationship with God. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? What's he saying? He's saying that when we say yes to Jesus, we have this positional purity that we're children of God, we're in this relationship with God, and we've invited him to have a place in our heart, and our desire is to say yes to Jesus on this day and say yes to him for the rest of our days, that no one else is invited, that he has our allegiance, our adoration, right, our worship, That's what he's saying. He's simply saying that my relationship with God is exclusive. When I say yes to Jesus, I'm inviting him in to a place in my heart no one else is invited. In fact, he's jealous for that. Look at what it says in verse 5. 
He says, do you think scripture is without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Like there's this, like I, I want to have this kind of intimacy and relationship with you. Like my wife is jealous for that kind of, and I would be as well, right? And so when it gets divided, when it's not exclusive, all of a sudden that's when jealousy kind of rares up. It's interesting to me. What, what is he saying? Think of it this way. Okay, I'm going to say it this way. You're going to be like, that's a stupid example until I tell you how it applies to our relationship with God. I have a wife. Her name is Jennifer. I do not have a weekend wife. Imagine if I had a weekend wife. Hey, Jen, will you be my weekend wife? Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, would you be my wife? And I think I'm going to have some girlfriends on Monday through Friday afternoon, right? Like, you're looking at me like, some of you are like feeling bad for Jennifer right now. That's not the way it rolls, right? You'd be like, it's crazy wouldn't do that. Why do I tell you that? Listen, you ready? Ready? God, ready? Does not want to be your weekend God. Now it makes sense. God has no desire to be a weekend God in a weekend relationship with us. God wants to be the God of our life, the Lord of our life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. See, that's always saying my relationship is exclusive. Not only that, my relationship is a priority. Think about it maritally, and then let's apply it biblically to, to our relationship with God. My relationship with Jennifer is my priority. Everything, my relationship with Jennifer impacts every part of my life. I'm married to Jennifer. It, if you're married, you kind of understand what I'm saying. It affects every part of my life. My, my spending, my free time, my hobbies, everything's affected, right? That's what it means to be married. She's the first person I see every day. She's the last person I see every day. She's the person, quite frankly, as much as I love you guys, I care more about what she thinks than any of you and all of you put together. I talk to her more than anyone else on the planet. We're texting like, hey, this person invited us over. Do you think we'll be able, you know? Why? Because our lives are intertwined. She's the priority in my life. Why is she the priority in my life? I want to tell you something about marriage. Some, you ought to write this down. If you're thinking about getting married, you're not married, you need to know this, that marriage Okay, marriage is a relationship of mutual submission. It's mutual submission. I submit me to us. It's no longer about me and making sure she's doing this. It's about us. And so I'm going to submit in this relationship me to us, which makes very interesting what James says next. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Now listen, 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 listen. There's something I got to tell you. Submit yourselves then to God. Well, I thought you said it's a mutual submission. It is. Do you know our relationship with God is about both of us submitting? Did you know that? You're like, it is? It is. God at the cross submitted himself to death on our behalf for our sin. Why? Because God is dying to have a relationship with you this morning. That's how devoted God is to you. And so what he says is when you get that, it's not obey the rules because the church said it. That ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. But when I begin to understand this, it's like, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I be devoted to a God who is crazy about me, devoted to me to the point where he died for me in my place? What would happen, in, what would happen in, in your devotion and relationship with God if he was the first person you talked to, the last person you signed off with, and the person you cared most about what they thought throughout the day? You see, it's about a devotion to a relationship. It's exclusive. It's the priority. And there's one more thing. I want you to write this down. My relationship's growing. It's growing. Here's what I can tell you, that... On November 4th, 1989, I was madly in love with Jennifer Anthony. Like, like, I thought no one could love her any more than I love her. Like, I actually loved my wife. I thought I cannot love her any more than I, than I do right now. Can I tell you something? That 20, however many years later, I look back at that and like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Our love has done what? It has grown why has our love grown? Just think about this. Don't make the Bible too hard. 
Just think about it. Why has our love grown? Well, we've spent 20, I've kind of lost in the math right now. I'm all nervous because my mother-in-law's sitting here. But, but 20 some years, we've, we, 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 we have spent talking to each other, listening to each other. I know things that I didn't know before we got married. She shared her heart, dreams, thoughts, all those kinds. We spent 20 some years just talking and downloading and listening and communicating. Praise God that isn't all we've done, right? We've lived life together. We've walked through life for the last 20-some years together. We've had some victories and celebrations and laughed together. Guess what? We've cried together, disappointments and darkness. You know what else? We've had kids together. I'm going to tell you something. That's something that has the opportunity to either draw you together or tear you apart, right? But we've had kids together. And so we have spent our life, our kids are grown and gone now, giving our lives away together. And so therefore, over the last however many years, we've grown in our relationship through experiences, through communicating, through giving our life away. Look at what James says about our relationship with God. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Listen, when I'm devoted to God, I grow in my relationship with God. I'm going to talk to some of you in the room and say I'm a follower of Christ. If your relationship is the same as it was the day you said yes to Jesus, listen, I love you, something's wrong. That wouldn't be okay in my marriage, would it? You would look at my marriage and say, something's out of whack. I said, yes, I'm her husband. And we, our, there was no dynamic in our relationship. You'd be like, there's something wrong. If my relationship with God is not growing, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Being pure in heart is being devoted in my relationship to God. And if I'm devoted in my relationship to God, there's this dynamic where my relationship's going to grow. How's it going to grow? Think about my marriage. We're going to talk and communicate. I want to talk to the fellows in the room because I love you guys and I know exactly the struggles we have. Some of you are like, I don't read. I don't like to read. I get it. I get it. Then listen. I met with a young man this week, and he, 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 he said, you know, he had, uh, I think it was an hour trip and back to work. I said, turn your smartphone on and, and listen to the Word of God being read to you. Right? But I, I will tell you this. Please hear me. I love you guys. I'm, this is not a bald preacher yelling at you. I don't know how you grow in your relationship with God if you don't listen to Him. Like, I, I just don't know. How would I grow in my relationship with Jennifer if we never talked? And some of you are like, because I just talked to somebody this week and said, I don't know where to start. And that is a great question. I'll answer that all day long. I said, well, you can start the book of Proverbs. It's a good place. Book of Psalms, that's real. Go to the book of Mark. Maybe James. Maybe start one of those four books. Like, where do I start? I start there. So for some of you in the room, if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, it begins by listening to him, communicating with him. There's others of you in the room. Can I just talk to you for a second? You're like, I do that because I'm in four Bible studies. I do inductive, deductive, reductive, and whatever, you know. I mean, I'm parsing great, you know. I want to go deep. Listen to me. I'm going to just share something. I'm going to go deep. I've been doing this for 25 years. Can I tell you something? I'm going to write it down. If you're that person, don't email me. Email Aiden. Don't email me. (laughs) I'm going to tell you about going deep. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. You're only as deep as your obedience. You don't need to add another Bible study. I need another some sort of inductive Bible. If, you've got, if you're sitting through four, get in the Word. If you're that person, get in the Word. But if you're in the Word, i got to say, am I following Jesus? Am I doing what He's doing? Some people that are in all these Bible studies don't have any unbelieving friends in their life. It's like, I want to devote to what He's devoted to. I'm going to share my faith with others. I'm going to give my life away to others. You see what I'm saying? I, I need to listen to Him, so I need to be in the Word. But it's not just that. My wife and I's relationship grew because we lived life together. You see, that's what he's saying. Being pure in heart is being devoted in my relationship with God. Look here a second. How you doing? How you doing? Be real with yourself. Because one out of three of you are happy. 
like one out of three of you are happy. And Jesus said, hey, happy are the pure in heart, those who are clean and committed, those who are devoted to this relationship to the one who was devoted to them. How you doing? You see, James says, I want you to be devoted in your relationship to God, but I love the fact that James is real. Because he says there's somebody who wants to screw up your relationship with God. Look at what he says. He says, submit yourself, there it is, submit yourselves then to God. He says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look here a second. If I was a yeller, I'd yell right now. If I was a beggar, I'd beg right now. I'd get on my hands and knees and beg for you to listen to what I'm getting ready to say. Satan wants to divide your devotion. Satan wants to mess with your mind. Satan wants to harden your heart. He wants to soil your soul. Satan wants to destroy. I love the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How in the world do we walk in purity from this day to that day? I'll commit to devotion to my heart and devotion to God. But the second thing I need to get my head around is I'll guard my heart from Satan. I will guard my heart from Satan. I will guard my heart from Satan. I'm not sure you heard me. I will guard my heart from Satan. I want you to say it out loud with me. I will guard my heart from Satan. Because he wants to mess with your mind. He wants to destroy your heart. He wants to affect your devotion to God. That's why Proverbs 4 says this. It says, above everything else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. So it begs the question, and I want to go somewhere with you. Then how in the world does Satan begin to mess with our thinking, our mind? How does he do that? Now, now look here a second. If you've been here any length of time, you know something about me. Okay, and it's not, it's not an insult. I'm, I'm a simple-minded guy. I, I think, okay, how does Satan get into my mind to affect my mind? And the way I see it, there's other ways, but the two primary on-ramps into my mind, think about it, are my eyes and my ears. And so if I'm going to guard my heart, it tells me what I'm going to do. First and foremost, I'm going to be careful what I'm looking at. I'm going to be careful what I'm looking at. Jesus says it this way. That he says it in this sermon. He says, our eyes are like windows into our soul. He says it a little more distinctly a little later in Matthew. Let's flip there. There we go. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, look at this, that anyone, what's it say? Who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's Jesus saying? Look here, and we're going to get real here in a second. Can we do that? What Jesus is saying is what you look at impacts your heart, your mind, your life. That's what he's saying. I'm going to say it again. What Jesus is saying is what you look at, what you allow in, affects your life. It affects your mind. Why is that important? Because I can't think of any other time in history when it is so easy to look at so much, so often, so privately. I'm going to say it again. I cannot think of a time in history when it is so easy to look at so much, so often, and so privately. Technology is not a bad thing. If you're here and you're anti-technology for all those reasons, you'll miss the point. But we live in a day and age when it is so easy to look at so much, so often, so privately. I dug up some things that I've done in the past, and I'll just read some things to you. One out of three Americans seek out pornography at least once a month. Half of the adults, 25 and older, would say viewing porn is wrong. The other half would say it's amoral. There's nothing wrong. 
One-third of teenagers, 13 to 24, say it's wrong. That means two-thirds say it's amoral, it's not wrong. The statistics would say men more frequently than women view pornography, but women, before you sit back with your arms folded, pornography among women is rapidly increasing. Teenagers and young adults rank not recycling as more immoral than pornography. When asked to list what their top ten immoral things are, number one was taking something that doesn't belong to someone else, number four was not recycling, number nine was pornography. Now I have your attention. Because I know this. In this room, in this room right now, some of you are struggling with what you're allowing into your eyes. Both men and women. Some of you right now are trying to battle this. You're struggling with it. You're not sure who to talk to about it. Because you're afraid if I tell somebody, I can't believe. I can't believe. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If you're a parent of a teenage boy, assume he has struggled at some point with it. If I'm proven wrong, I'll celebrate that all day long. Just assume it. If you've got teenage girls, don't assume they don't struggle with it. Tracking with me? Some of you are struggling this minute. And can I tell you what you look at affects? I got your attention. I wish you could be in my place up here because some of you feel the weight of guilt. And so what the weight of guilt does is it presses you into a perpetual life of deception because you got to make people think something other than it really is true. Tracking with me? Some of you are struggling and all it's doing is turning the crank of anger. You see? Some of you are struggling and all it's doing is causing conflict in your relationships. You know why? Because pornography dehumanizes people. That's why we call them sex objects. See how that works? And see, all Jesus is saying is what you let in here affects here. Don't think it doesn't. Don't for one minute think it doesn't. We've normalized it in our culture. That's why one-third, one-third of teenagers would say something's wrong with it. See what I'm saying? And this becomes the window to my soul. You see, here's what pornography does. Some of you in the room, and, and, and you're, you're struggling, and maybe you're struggling this minute. All pornography does is this is it takes me to school. If you're struggling with pornography, think of it this way. You're in school right now, and the school you're in is teaching you three things. Three things. It's teaching you first and foremost that a real body isn't good enough. It's teaching you, second, that one body isn't enough. And it's teaching you that my spouse's body or my wife's body won't be satisfactory. See what I mean? It affects your heart, your mind. And see, all Jesus seems to be saying is guard your heart. You see, I feel for some of you in the room because you're like, you're going to go to work. And you're like, I love this, I love this. But Monday, the fellas... And the stuff at lunch and the stuff at whatever. And you're going to be like. So what do I do? I love Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. Look what he says. Look what he says. He says, what do I do? Does it matter? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. You're like, great. (laughs) A bunch of one-eyed guys running around, right? Right? What's he saying? Write this somewhere on your notes. Okay, I'm serious. Even if you don't totally agree with me, just write it down and think about it. I think Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes. 
Why? Because it's the right thing to do. No, because Satan wants to divide your devotion to a God who's crazy about you and somehow he is dividing your focus. And he's allowing things in that are somehow dividing your attention. Do whatever it takes. I like what Job says. He says this, I made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a young woman. Look here, and then I, gotta, I really got to race to the end. If you're struggling this minute, you're struggling right now this minute, and I know some of you are. I already know that. Some of you are struggling right now. Let me tell you a couple things. Do whatever it takes. So I know a, a friend of mine who was struggling. He has a smartphone. Guess what? He now has a flip phone. It's like, wow, oh, man, everybody's got a smartphone. It's more convenient. It's like he did whatever it takes. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Do whatever it takes. Another guy came and told me, he said, I stopped by this one place on my way home. I'm like, I'd go a different way. Do whatever it takes. See what I'm saying? Second, if you're struggling, listen, if you're struggling, don't struggle in isolation. Don't, the church has been terrible about this. I want everybody to think everything's great. And so if I tell somebody I'm struggling, they might just fall off their seat. I admire people who are real about their struggle. Right? You'll begin to heal when you're real. I've got to guard my heart. Got to be careful what I look at. Now, for the sake of time, I want to say the next one. Not only that, I got to be careful who I listen to. I don't need to tell you that our culture is screaming in our ear. We have commercials and ads that tell us what we need. Celebrities and singers tell us how we feel. Politicians tell us what we value. Friends and fads tell us what's in. We probably know the opinion of our favorite podcast than we do of what God has to say. We live in a culture where it's just screaming at us. So what do we do to guard our hearts? Psalm 119. I want to show you this. You ought to write this passage down. Put it in your truck. Put it in your locker at work. Put it on your mirror at home. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Look here a second. What's a young person? How old's, how old's young? Last week, one of y'all asked somebody on my staff how old I was. And that person said, he's 52. Does he look older or younger? And you said older. So we're going to stay an extra 10 minutes just because of that. <laughs> How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Not just knowing it, by living according to your word. I'll seek you with all my heart. Devotion to the one who's devoted to us. Don't let me stray from your commands. Why? Because you didn't stray from the cross. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorize this. Not just because it's a good Bible thing to do. Hide it in your heart. You see, here's the deal. This is one way to guard your heart, and then, then I'm done. This isn't the only way, but this is one way. I, I don't know how you're going to be devoted to God or guard your heart apart from this book. This is God speaking to us. But don't read it so you can check it off. Write this down somewhere. When I read the Bible, here's two things. I listen to God, and I look for Jesus. I listen to God, and I look for Jesus. I listen to God and I look for Jesus. Listen to God, look for Jesus. Listen to God, look for Jesus. Why? Because Satan wants to get into my eyes and into my ears. And so this book is all about Jesus and it's God speaking to me. And so I listen to God and I look for Jesus. So that begs a question. You're like, Dan, you didn't fill in all the blanks. I'm getting ready to. Being pure in heart is being devoted to my relationship with God. It's guarding my heart. And some of you are sitting there because I can see it in some of your eyes. And you're like, what about me? I've screwed up. What about me? I've messed up. Like, what, what do I do? How do I walk and pursue practical purity? And here's what I would say to you. I don't just... Devote my heart, guard my heart, but I cleanse my heart from sin. You see, the Beatitudes are connected. And the second thing Jesus said was this. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. They'll be comforted. All of a sudden, I begin to grieve over 
what the one I'm devoted to grieves over. And it leads me to a godly sorrow that says, God, please cleanse me. You know what he says? Those who do that, be comforted. Be comforted. They'll be cleansed. You have a God who's crazy about you. He is so crazy about you that he died for you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And he said, happy are the pure in heart. Those who are devoted to me, those who will guard their heart because Satan doesn't want you to be devoted to me, and those who, when they get over here, will mourn over their sin so that I can clean their heart. So I'd love you across the room as the band comes out. We're going to finish with a song and we're done. I'd love you to bow your heads and you can close your eyes if that feels better. If you just want you to get to a space you can think. My question for you this morning is, how you doing? How you doing? Some of you might be sitting here and saying, Dan, I've never said yes to Jesus. I've been trying to clean my act up. And I didn't realize that being a Christian was about saying yes to what he did and not necessarily all about what I do. This morning you can do that right there in your seat in this moment. Say, yes, Jesus, I believe that I'm impure, that you are pure, and that you died for all of my impurity. And this morning, I want to say yes to you, Jesus, as my Savior. And then I want to spend the rest of my day saying yes to you. Some of you are sitting here and, and you've said yes to Jesus already in your life. Can I ask you, how are you doing? How's your devotion to God? Oh, it's not the preacher made me feel guilty. It's like, how's your devotion to the one who is so crazy about you that he came and died in order to have a relationship with you have you let somebody else into that spot are you taking your cues from somebody else what would happen in your life if he was the first one you consulted the last one you signed off with and the one you cared most about what they thought what would happen some of you have let your guard down You've let your guard down. And I want to tell you, Satan wants to mess with your mind. He wants to harden your heart. The enemy isn't technology. It isn't even other people. Satan wants to destroy what God wants to build. Maybe in the quietness of this moment, it's just you talking to God. Psalm 51, David said, what God desires from us aren't religious piety and all that but he wants a broken and a contrite heart when things get in the way of us seeing God and being in this relationship with God God I don't know where my friends are at this morning but my prayer is is you meet us in this place and we desire to run into this relationship we trust you and believe that you are devoted to us and we're not always devoted to you So God, I pray this morning you'd meet us in this space and take us where you want us to go.